the lands between are a perplexing and magical place, a world that feels far distinct from the grounded reality of our own world, and this is no more evident than in Elden Ring's presentation of death. Indeed, death has always been a central focus to From Software games, but Elden Ring really takes it to the next level by having death represented by multiple different areas of lore. Death is one of the great philosophical and existential questions to ponder, as it is in our world, and the denizens of the lands between have varying beliefs and practices when it came to dealing with the end. In the modern Erdtree era, the systems of death have been hijacked by the Erdtree and Golden Order fundamentalism, with Erdtree burial being the nominal idea of ideal death. And yet there exist far older symbols of death, relics of different funerary rites whose very image still elicits a tie to the other side. There are those who cling on to their own practices, beliefs and divinity, separate from the dominion of the Erdtree. The death need guidance and corralling, and in these different systems, as we will see, there is always a shepherd or an usher figure, a psychopomp, a spirit who helps guide the dead according to their faction's beliefs and desires. In this video, I am wanting to sift through the ashes, to structure and understand the concepts of death and how it functions in the lands between. So join me this week as we analyse the lore of death itself. Before we go any further guys, remember that if you like Elden Ring lore content, then please consider subscribing to the channel, as I have hours worth of lore content for you to sift through now. At the outset of this video, I also want to shout out a few creators whose work has been instrumental for me researching this video. This includes Vati, V-Limit, Crunch and Last Protagonist. A special big thanks to Last Protagonist for providing translations, and Vati in general for sharing his own lore notes with me, which helped me visualise the section on Ghost Flame immensely. A perfect place to start when analysing the concept of death is with ourselves the tarnished. We who are dead and yet live. Oh, rise now. Ye tarnished, ye dead, who yet live. The call of long-lost grace speaks to us all. Death is one of the first aspects of the lore that the player will stumble across, even if they don't think too deeply about it. In an interview with Weekly Famitsu in March 2022, Miyazaki describes that the tarnished, the player, are descendants of those who are originally exiled, alongside Godfrey. And now I'm going to quote that passage from Wheatley Famitsu. The people who live in the lands between have a golden glow in their eye from the grace of the Erdtree. Some people, however, have lost that glow, and they were called the Tarnished and exiled from the lands between. The player character and the other Tarnished who appear in-game are descendants of such people. After the Elden Ring was shattered, the guidance of grace appeared to the tarnished and others who could not die, telling them to return to the lands between, gain audience with the Elden Ring and become Elden Lord. And that is how the game begins. So we are descended from those who were originally exiled by Marika and the Greater Will alongside Godfrey when grace left his eyes. In Marika's own words, my lord and thy warriors, I divest each of thee of thy grace. With thine eyes dimmed, ye will be driven from the lands between. Ye will wage war in a land afar. 
where you will live and die. Well, perhaps that might serve you in lieu of a maiden's guidance. Even at this stage, it's clear that Marika expects the Tarnished to go outside the lands between battle and die, before being brought back by Grace in due course. And from what we see of Godfrey, we know this to be true. Godfrey is shown to have died at some point as a Tarnished in the introductory cinematic, before being brought back once more as Godfrey, the first Elden Lord. So right at the offset of the game, we are immediately introduced to the idea that there is some degree of fluidity in regards to death, and it is a necessary building block of any From Software game. In every single game, death and the respawn mechanic has been built into the lore itself. In Dark Souls, the very nature of our curse is more directly addressed right from the onset, and while it has a lot of depth and nuance, notably explored in Dark Souls 2, the idea of the curse of the undepth is more head-on tackled in Dark Souls, whereas in Elden Ring, the idea of being tarnished is a little bit more obscure in the lore, and isn't as essential as the curse of the undead is to Dark Souls. And while that is true, another facet of the lore is thrown in our face early on, and that is the idea of the Guidance of Grace, which exists to guide us tarnished. And indeed, the Erd Tree and the Two Fingers need us, and so will not let us die, and thus Grace keeps us alive. And while this is greatly implied in the game, it is directly stated by Miyazaki himself. In an interview with Miyazaki in the Overture of Elden Ring book, Miyazaki says the following on the immortality of the Tarnished. The immortality of the Tarnished stems from the power of the Guidance of Grace. Tarnished that die outside the lands between are given new life through the Guidance of Grace, and are beckoned to the lands between. This is basically the start of the game. I guess the Guidance doesn't want the player character to be freed. So this now mechanically makes sense, as when we die we do resurrect at the last sight of Grace. But what is Grace? How does it have the power to literally prevent us from dying? Grace seems to be an extension of the Elden Ring, of its power and influence, as the Golden Rune item description suggests that having Grace is the same as holding these runes. It reads as follows. Grace that dwells within the inhabitants of the lands between, the lingering trace of gold. Runes are the nourishment for the development of any tarnished, provided a finger maiden can be found. Runes are fragments of the Elden Ring, and if runes are grace, then it means that grace is an extension of the Elden Ring, hence why those without grace are seen as tarnished, as dirty, as without grace. The tutorial notes the fact that Grace is essentially a tool to transmit the Erd Tree's directions for the Tarnished. In short, Grace is just another extension of the Erd Tree in Elden Ring, and through it, the Tarnished are bound to its power, shackled beyond even death, until their task is completed, or their usefulness is outlived. The point of highlighting this example is that it is the first example of the many mechanisms through which death is manipulated and corralled, by the Erd Tree and other forces. It also shows this idea of being guided. Throughout this video I'm going to talk about the idea of cycle pumps and we'll get on it soon. But in short, cycle pumps are spirits that guide the dead, and the tarnished are the dead that yet live. And so in a way, the tarnished are kin to the other dead that are manipulated and corralled, 
by these cycle pump forces. Throughout this video we will see many examples of how the dead are seemingly lost and will only act according to the guidance they are given. Is this any different from ourselves? When we first picked up the controller and played the game, would we even know what to do had it not been for the guidance of Grace? I want you just to bear that in mind when we talk about all the other dead that are shepherd throughout this video, that we, the tarnished, may be no different. And with that being said, I now want to pick up one of the oldest symbols of death in the lands between, the death rites and the death birds. To me, the most interesting facet of the practices associated with these sinister birds is that they were developed in a world absent the Erd Tree, before the Erd Tree was around. And for the player, this should immediately be intriguing, as the lands between we actually get to explore is so dominated by the Erd Tree, both physically and culturally. And we learn that these death rites were developed outside the Erd Tree's purview before its arrival from the explosive ghost flame spell, which reads as following. Sorcery of the Servants of Death In the time when there was no Erd Tree, death was burned in ghost flame. Death birds were the keepers of that flame. As I discussed in my Erd Tree lore video, clearly there was a period of time when cultures and society developed and existed outside of the dominion of the Erd Tree, and given its function in regards to the processes of death, it makes sense that prior mechanisms and funerary rites needed to exist. I argue in that same video that there was a period of history between the reign of the ancient dragons and Queen Marika's reign, in which there was no Elden Lords that we know of, and there must have been some sort of power vacuum, unlike what we see in the current Erdtree era, where everything is culturally dominated by the Erdtree itself. As such, in this period, it seems as though there was an outer god that was able to spread, and its rites, its death rites, would become the dominant funerary rite of the world at this era. I'm of course referring to the outer god that is linked to what we know as the Twin Bird, a being we learn of via the Twin Bird Kite Shield, which reads as follows. Shield featuring a vividly painted Twin Bird. The Twin Bird is said to be the envoy of an outer god, and mother of the Death Birds. This is the only direct mention we get of this Twin Bird and its associated outer god, Yet that being said, this small piece of evidence actually gives us a lot to work with and chew over. First of all, it directly links the death birds and their rites to an outer god, as well as placing the creation of these death birds at the feet of this twin bird, an envoy to that greater god. Now this twin bird is described as an envoy, and an envoy is of course a messenger, meaning this bird was a messenger or representative of this outer god. As Vati says in his great video on the death-related bosses, the image we get of this twin bird is indeed very reminiscent of the mythological phoenix. The phoenix is of course a bird heavily associated with death, through its endless cycle of death and rebirth. However, I think we can also learn a little bit more from the appearance of this bird, as it is known as the twin bird, and we can see from the shield that this title is reflective of their actual or presented appearance two heads and two halves of a body, both represented with different colours. If I was to guess what this is representing, I would hazard that one half is meant to represent life, and one half is meant to represent death, 
symbolising its remit over the cycle of life and death. In Crunchy's Health and Lore video, in his pinned comment, he makes an interesting supplementary point to the video content. He states the following in that comment. The twin bird kite shield depicts a black bird against a red background and a red bird against a blue background. If the black bird is somehow represented or manifested by the death birds, it begs the question what the red bird is. In alchemical symbolism, this would represent the raven and the phoenix, symbolising kind of physical death and release into the spiritual world, whether literal or metaphorical. I agree with Crunchy that these halves are different facets of the one whole, and that the death half is most certainly manifested by her raven, deathbird children. Though this does leave us curious about the potential children of her other half, or whether it is actually also represented by the death birds and we are just missing some of the greater picture. We don't know much about the outer god that's connected to this twin bird, but as with all outer gods that we know of quote-unquote in the game, we have to assume that their actions of their followers and their servants, in this case the death birds, must be representative of their ideals and their remit, so to speak. And at this point I'd like to shout out another great lore video, and it's Mr. Holthen. In his lore video on the Outer God of the Deathbirds, which I will link below, Mr. Holthen suggests that the Outer God of the Deathbirds is one of death and of battle. The reason he does this is he thinks that there is a link between certain items that suggest that this Outer God rewards those who die in battle. The first item that he points to in order to prove this theory is the blue feathered branch sword, an item that we'll see later is closely associated with the deathbirds, and is an item that is dropped by them in fact, and its description reads as follows. The heart sings when one draws close to death, and thus does one cling so tenaciously to life, to render up a death worth offering. And this similar idea is also reflected in the red feathered branch sword which reads as follows. The heart sings when one draws close to death, and a glorious end awaits those who cling so tenaciously to life. As Mr. Holthen states, it suggests that those who cling so desperately onto their life, who fight for their life, are to be rewarded in death. And indeed this idea of people being rewarded for being great heroes is something that's also reflected in Erdtree traditions, for we find many a uh, great hero ashes who seem to have been granted an Erdtree burial as an honour for their actions in life. And this repeated theme and this repeated idea seems to give water to what Mr. Holthen is suggesting here, that this outer god is possibly one of death and of battle that rewards warriors after life. Mr. Holthen then also links it to the Helfin steeple sword, something I will cover later in this video for other reasons. But in short, Mr. Holfen repeats the idea that is said on the Helfen steeple item description that shows that those who have died a warrior's death will be guided by the Helfen in the spirit world, i.e. be rewarded for their heroics and battle prowess. It's a really great video and actually one of the best explanations or theories on what the outer god of the deathbirds could represent, so I'll link that video below and highly recommend you check Mr. Holfen out and give them a sub. But moving on from the outer god and back to the deathbirds themselves, I want to talk about their symbolism, their appearance as ravens or crows. As is always the case with From Software, nothing is really done or selected by chance, and neither is choosing to make this branch of death custodians 
to have a crow or raven form. As birds crop up throughout history and cultures as a symbol or messenger of death, and no birds are more associated with death than the crow or the raven. To many people, internally, they already associate ravens and crows with death, and the reason this is the case is because they are carrion eaters. No doubt on the battlefields throughout history, these birds would have been a common sight among the dead, and thus where there was death, there would be crows. I will soon discuss the idea of psychopomps, spirits who guide and shepherd the dead, a common theme in Elden Ring as far as I see it, and birds and crows are quite often seen as psychopomps, which is why many believed they gathered near where the dead were, that these birds were getting ready to guide them, and ultimately this is what the death birds actually do in game. They gather the dead and do guide them to the other side, and they fall into the category for me of death shepherds or ushers. They are just one of many, and we will discuss the rest soon. And while the crow or the raven might be closely associated for death with us in the real world, for those in the lands between, it was the death birds that were closely associated with death, synonymous with it indeed. Indeed, we will see that the association of death and these birds is so deeply ingrained within the culture of lands between society, leading to people taking the form of the bird to represent death in many instances. And to me, that death is so synonymous with these birds suggests that maybe they were one of the first representations or first manifestations of death in the lands between. Indeed, the fact that we can face so many in the game spread throughout the map shows how important the spread of this cult really was. One great bit of lore that helps exemplify how important they are to Erdtree society in regards to death comes from the Hidden Plumage item description, a cut content crafting material from the game, which reads as follows. Death's bearers were once said to have taken the form of birds, symbolised by these black feathers. But this does indeed carry over into their lore, and to what their role actually is. They were the shepherds of death, overseers of an ancient funerary practice, who presided over the burning of the dead within ghost flames. And so now let's take a look at these funerary practices themselves, the ghost flame and necromancy. We learn of these practices by the instruments that they wield, the death's poker, the description of which reads as follows. The birds are graveyard fire keepers. It is said they rake out the ashen remains of the dead from their kilns. These birds are the overseers as something known as the graveyard fires. Now, being someone who pays close attention to semantics in these games, this sentence is of great interest to me. First of all, graveyards. Now, graveyards are not necessary in Erdtree society, for we have the catacombs, as burial is not done in the ground as we would traditionally see it in the real world, for example. But in fact, the dead are taken to the catacombs to have an Erdtree burial to be reabsorbed by the great tree roots. So what are the graveyards that we see everywhere in game? Well, given what we've just heard in this item description, I would suggest that most of the graveyards we see in game, such as in Liarnia, Limgrave, and the mountain tops of the giants, are leftovers from this death rite practice that was once overseen by the death birds. And it wouldn't be the first example of us seeing the remains of other ancient civilizations and cultures 
strewn about the lands between, built around by the new Erdtree Society. This item description also suggests that in these graveyards, there were great fires or kilns in which the dead were burned, before their ashen remains were scraped out by these pokers. Fire pokers of course are actual instruments used for clearing out ash and moving around coals etc in a fire. Now the burning of the dead is of course a very common practice throughout real world history, such as in ancient Greek society, ancient Rome and Hinduism, just to name a few. However, to my own experiences and cultural background, it specifically reminds me of Western Protestant crematorium funerals, of which I have personally attended one. For those unfamiliar with these practices, the deceased are placed into a coffin, the coffin is then placed into a kiln, before the ashes are then retrieved, and typically placed into an urn, and then optionally, those ashes can be buried or kept by the family. So quite clearly, that is the role in which these deathbirds play, overseeing the funerary rites of a sort of crematorium practice, and specifically the dead are burned within something known as the ghost flames, and this is told to us by the Rancor Pot item description, which reads as follows. In times of old, the dead were burned with ghost flame, and from those cinders arose vengeful spirits. The ghost flame is a curious phenomena, because while the deathbirds did use it to burn the dead, it also seems to have been produced from the dead themselves. This is something we learn from the story of the fallen hawks, the zombie-like expedition that found themselves trapped underground and desperate, and in their desperation, they took to burning the bones of their fellows and produced the ghost flame. And this is something we can learn of via the ghost flame torch, which reads as follows. Metal torch that burns with cold ghost flame, tool of the fallen hawks who prowl the underground rivers. When the band's last embers were used up in their long search, they began to burn the bones of their fellows, acquiring the cold ghost flame, but sealing their fate as dwellers of the underground for all eternity. So it appears as though burning bones produces this ghost flame, but it isn't as simple as that. It seems as though burning the bones of the dead produces the ghost flame because it is intrinsically linked to the dead and the spirits within. And I say this of course because we also see the ghost flame in another circumstance, when those who live in death are resurrecting, something pointed out by Crunchy in his Helfin lore video. Now, we do have a fairly tentative way of explaining why the ghost flame appears at this point of resurrection, because it seems that ghost flames are also tied to vengeful or strong spirits, as seen in ancient Death Rancor, where it is implied that from these ashes can be found vengeful spirits, and I would suggest that the ghost flame appearing around the bones of a resurrecting undead is symbolic of their vengeful spirit once again inhabiting their form and refusing to dissipate entirely. This idea of those who live in death being a life form that is in essence a spirit that refuses to die is something that can be backed up with a translation. And once again I turn to fellow content creator Last Protagonist, who has provided a fascinating translation of one of Rogier's dialogues. In the English, Rogier says the following, You may find this peculiar, but I have discovered something in my examination of the Knight of the Black Knives. These souls have committed no offence. They have every right to life, only they happened to touch upon a flaw in the order. 
However, according to the last protagonist's own translation of the Japanese, he reads it in a slightly different way. You probably think I'm strange, but I'm in the middle of researching the night of the plot. They haven't made any transgressions, just living determinedly, and because of that, they've run into a flaw of the order. Living determinedly, i.e. wanting to live so much, to keep themselves alive so much, that they in essence refuse to die. And thematically, this ties into something I've looked at already, the blue and red feathered branch sword talismans, which introduced the idea of people holding on so tenaciously to life. And again, the repeated thematics seems to give some weight to this translation by last protagonist. And this determination to live, to me, well explains the manifestation of the ghost flame and the resurrection of those who live in death. They simply refuse to die. They are living determinedly. The point being is that the ghost flame is a little bit more complex than it first appears to be. It isn't just a flame from the bones of the dead, it is intrinsically linked to the dead and their spirits. I think this idea is further backed up by the Curious Grave Violet item description, which had me perplexed for a long time before I had pondered these very questions. Its description reads as follows. A purple flower that blooms in graveyards, material used for crafting items, the hue of ghost flame, it's believed to be useful in calling forth spirits. Now, the grave violet is of course used in one recipe, the Rancor pot, and so is a material that produces spirit fire, or ghost flame. Now, what follows is of course my own speculation, but I believe the fact that this plant specifically grows in graveyards means that its growth must be connected to the dead and or their spirits. The fact the flower itself can be used to summon ghost flame and the associated rancor spirits to me suggests a sort of cycle, that these flowers are directly connected to the dead. They have grown from the dead, whose spirits are in turn connected to the ghost flame, and thus these flowers, these grave violets, are infused with the same power. The ghost flame isn't just born from burning the bones, it is an element, a metaphysical element, intrinsically linked to the dead and their bodies, which is why we can get the ghost flame from the bones of the dead or this flower, which has grown from those areas in which the dead are also located. The understanding that the ghost flame is an intrinsic part of the spirit and the dead, rather than just a practice or a magic of the death birds, is essential in understanding how it is also associated with other death practices and I find the Grave Violet to be a cornerstone in that understanding. But more on those other connections later, just bear it in mind for now. Now, returning to the idea that the Deathbirds are able to summon vengeful spirits through the Rancor, this does seem to fit into the logic of the world, given that we know the dead can be controlled and summoned via Ash. In the case of the Deathbirds, these vengeful spirits, these Rancor, can be summoned or found within the ash raked from the fires of the deathbirds, and this is something we learn from ancient Death Rancor, which reads as follows. Summons a horde of vengeful spirits that chase down foes. They are cinders of the ancient death hex, raked from the fires of ghost flame by deathbirds. Now this is very similar to our ability to use the spirit calling bell to summon forth spirit from the ash, and yet the Rancor spell suggests that the Deathrite birds were able to manipulate spirits in a more primitive degree, recreating a vengeful facet of the deceased 
rather than a one-to-one -one creation of the spirit, like the spirit calling Belkan. They draw upon this exact aspect of the dead, the vengeful aspect, and they fire forth a one-tone version of the spirits within the ash. Is it possible the more sophisticated version of spirit calling via the spirit calling bell was developed by building off the practices of these death right birds, the practice of summoning vengeful spirits? I certainly think this is plausible as both practices do directly draw upon an aspect of the spirit from the ashes of the dead. The idea of death birds harnessing the power of spirits is further augmented by our understanding of the augmented wings that we see on upgraded death birds, known as death right birds in the game. These versions of the death birds have huge magical wings in which sit a number of ghostly people. It turns out that death birds would have been supported in their death rites by certain priests, and this is something we learn via the death rite spear, which reads as follows. The priests became guardians of the birds through the rite of death, which also serves as an oath sworn to their distant resurrection. Now this is a really interesting idea of dying so you can be revived in the future, and is something we will come back to when we visit the mausoleum and the soulless demigods. But in general it seems as though, collectively, the practice overseen by the birds and their priests were known as the rite of death the death rites, hence the death rite birds. I find it interesting that there were clearly humans involved, priests that served the manifestation of an outer god, the death birds, and perhaps these priests were priests to that outer god itself, the outer god that we discussed earlier in this video, and no doubt the priests venerated the death birds and their twin bird mother as well. These priests wielded these staffs and made an oath to become the guardians of these death right birds in exchange for future resurrection, being dead now and being brought to life in the future. And as most will be aware, these are the priests that are visible in the wings of the death right birds, the upgraded versions of the death birds, and it appears as though this is how they act as guardians, as the presence of these wings and the presence of these priests do grant the death birds, the death right birds, far more power than their lesser kin. To me the death right priests, present as ghostly visages in the wings of the death right birds, are channeling their powers, granting the death birds their enhanced powers, and this is evidenced by the ghostly glow present on these models that is not present on the regular death birds. And for those who ask me to explain why these death birds are so difficult to kill, there's your answer. The death right priests in the wings of these powered up death birds are granting them all those horrendous powers, so these priests are the reason why the death birds are so traumatic to fight. Now the death right priests are interesting to me because I've suggested that they channel the power of the death birds, and now I want to segue into a subject that deals with another human trying to resurrect and channel these powers for their own ends. I'm now going to talk about the subject of necromancy and the necromancer Garrus that we meet in game. Let's try and unpack this lore by first of all looking at Garrus himself. He is wearing the sages set, tying up with the name of the cave, the sages cave that we find him in. This set reads as follows, thick burgundy robe, 
attire of the wise sages who were deemed heretical, evidence that the wearer was driven from town. I discussed this in my Millennial Lore video, but we do meet another sage wearing person in game, Sage Gowrie. In that video, I argued that the town that Gowrie was driven from, as is mentioned in the sage set, was in fact Celia. Not only was he located near Celia, but is also very intimate with the secrets of the town and its sorceries, which themselves are secret. However, Gowrie has become an adherent of Rot and its incantations, which he can teach to you, and I conclude that it is these interests and veneration of the Rot in general that have had him driven from his former town. Now, I don't necessarily conclude that Garrus is also from Celia, however I would suggest that he has suffered a similar and parallel fate, that he was once a sage of some order, only to be expelled for his heretical magics. Yet for Garrus, these heretical magics were necromancy, not rot, and this no doubt led to his expulsion from whatever town and order he was a part of before. His motivations for doing so, for studying a heretical sorcery, is quite clear to us, as we can learn his motivations via the weapon he wields, the Family Head's Flail, and that item reads as follows. Three bludgeoning copper heads attached to a handle by chains, signature weapon of necromancer Garrus, the heretical sage. The heads were made to resemble those of his wife and two children. So for those familiar with Dark Souls 1 and its story, may find this story extremely familiar to that of the Pinwheel, a necromancer who stole some of the power of Nito the Gravelord in order to resurrect his wife and child. Here Garrus's aims can definitely be interpreted as similar, for what else could a man who is already mourning his wife and two children want with necromancy? Clearly, he only has one goal in mind the resurrection of his lost family. Now, as to why I have included necromancy in this particular section, it's because the branch of necromancy we encounter in Elden Ring appears to be an offshoot of the sorceries of the death rite, of the death birds. For example, we can tie the idea of rancor and controlling and guiding these vengeful spirits as something linked to the death rites and the death birds. And in fact it is the ancient death rancor which helps ties us together, and I know I've already read it but I will read it again just for the purposes of this section, summons a horde of vengeful spirits that chase down foes. They are the cinders of the ancient death hex, raked from the fires of Ghostflame by deathbirds. This now appears to be an ancient art that has been resurrected and revived by the necromancer Garrus, for the rancorol spell reads as follows. Sorcery of the Servants of Death, summons vengeful spirits that chase down foes. Once thought lost, this ancient death hex was rediscovered by the necromancer Garrus. So this is an interesting bit of lore for a number of reasons. Firstly, it appeals to my obsessive need to understand and place the Elden Ring timeline. It uses the term ancient, indicating to us that the time of the Deathbirds and their associated practices happened a long time ago, as well as the fact that it was a long time ago when the world was absent the Erd Tree. Secondly, it also links this branch of necromancy to the death rites, but unlike the death rites, the necromancer Garrus is not as interested 
in the whole rites as a whole as a religious practice, but is instead interested in the ability to control the spirits from the ash of the long dead, and his need to somehow control and recreate the spirits of his lost family, and this motivation and objective seems to have been achieved to some degree, and this is backed up by the skill found on Garrus's weapon, called Familial Rancor, and the description of that skill reads as follows. Gently rattle the copperheads to summon vengeful spirits that chase down foes. The anguish of a spouse and children invites a cursed wrath. Given the description of this skill, and the description of the Rancorol spell, I conclude that Garrus has looked in and researched the spells of the death rite to harness the spirits of his long dead family, and in a way he has succeeded, but as we have already discussed, the death rites and their control of Rancor only provides a primitive aspect of the deceased spirit, it isn't a one to one recreation, it only draws upon their vengeance. And while Garrus has managed to resurrect his family in a sense, I can hardly believe this pale and tortured imitation was his end goal, and thus I see Garrus's story as another one of tragedy, something far too common in Elden Ring. So while what we learn of the Deathrite birds may be threadbare, their legacy is far more prominent, as these birds essentially become symbolic and synonymous with death. We see this on the attire of the Raventmount assassins, including their cloak, which reads as follows. A ritual implement for transforming into a deathbird, if only by imitation. We are the birds of prey, bringers of death. These assassins want to represent themselves as the bringers of death, to strike fear into those who would cross them, and to give weight to their promise as assassins. And thus they have taken the raven appearance of the deathbirds, but not only that, they attempt to mimic their movements by diving on their opponents from above, as we learn via their raptor talon weapons. And this is all because the assassins want to appear as death themselves, and to this world, there is no clearer indication of death than the deathbirds. It becomes clear that in the world of Elden Ring, the most recognisable symbol of death is the deathbird, as it might be the skull for us in real life, and this really speaks to the cultural importance that these deathbirds once held. They were death in a world before the Earth Tree, and even now, people take their symbol as the symbol of death. But ultimately, the deathbirds aren't just death themselves, they were shepherds, shepherds of the dead, guiding the deathrite priests in burning of the dead and controlling and shepherding the vengeful spirits found within the ash. Throughout Elden Ring, many of the beings associated with death play this role as guide or shepherds, and so in the next chapter, I do want to have a look at the idea of psychopomps and analyse the different shepherds and ushers of death that we find throughout the lands between. Now I've mentioned the word psychopomp numerous times throughout the video and now it's time to really get into it. The word psychopomp is derived from an ancient Greek word that is used to describe a being or spirit whose purpose is to help guide the dead to the afterlife. This idea is very much a repeated theme in Elden Ring, as the dead are frequently described as lost and or needing guidance and leadership. For example, the Rosas Axe reads the following. Usher of Death, Rosas, who shows the path to the catacombs throughout the lands between, 
is depicted on this ritual axe. The deaf easily lose their way and have always been in sore need of a guiding hand. The Usher of Death, Rosas, is quite obviously the most clear example of a psychopomp in the entire game and is actually one of the first characters that we will probably come across in our exploration of the Lands Between. He is of course the statues that provide the blue guiding light that lead us to catacombs. What's interesting is the idea that there are those who become lost in death and this is an idea that we will see repeated when we examine the Tibia Mariners shortly. To me it gives the impression that the dead are a sort of resource that each system belief can gather and guide in order to dominate the world's life cycles. Unlike the Deathbirds however, it's clear that Roses is a being or psychopomp that is aligned with the status quo to be a guide to Erdtree burial, hence the blue lights that Roses statues produce that guide us to catacombs, these sites of Great Root Burial. Rosas seems to guide and protect the dead in other ways. Not only does he shepherd the dead to the roots of the great tree, but he also seems to overlook and protect the catacombs in varying ways. He very much is the psychopomp of the Erd Tree Order and Erd Tree Burial. Conversed to the Golden Order, we of course have those who live in death, and for an in-depth look into this area of the lore, I recently completed a very long video on the subject and I highly recommend it and will link below. However, in regards to the subject of Guides of the Dead, I think most of you will know where I'm going when I speak of those who live in death. We're of course speaking of the Tibia Mariners. A good place to start with the Tibia Mariners is of course with the Tibia's Summons item description which reads as follows. Summons a group of those lost in death. The dead have long been left to wander. What they need is leadership. As I mentioned earlier, we repeatedly see this idea of the dead becoming lost or that they require guidance. But Tibia's summons actually takes it further by capitalising a title, those lost in death, which I take to be a state of being comparable to those who live in death. Again, it gives me the idea that the dead are in this wayward state and it's up to the varying factions to gather this resource to their cause, whether that be through psychopomps like Rosas or the Tibia Mariners. The Tibia Mariners, while not mentioned much in in-game lore, are actually dripping with lore, if you excuse the pun, especially when it comes to their appearance. They are once again linked to the aquatic themes of the Prince of Death, Stagnation, Kigari, and Centipedes, again all subjects I dive deeply into in my Godwin lore video. However, in short, the aquatic facet of the Tibia Mariner makes sense, especially in relation to the relevance of stagnant water to those who live in death. However, to most, their appearance is most likely more evocative of a famous character of myth, the most famous psychopomp of them all. I of course refer to Haron, the boatman of the River Styx. When sending their dead to the afterlife, the ancient Greeks would often place a coin on their dead, and this was so they could pay the fee demanded by Haron when they reached Hades. Upon receiving the fee, Haron would ferry the dead across the river Styx that divided the land of the living and the land of the dead. No clearer a psychopomp could there be. And I think there would be very little argument that the Tibia Mariners are not meant to evoke this same image, and in concert with the Tibia summons, we clearly see the Tibia Mariners are guides to bring those who are lost in death into living death, to join those who live in death. 
Indeed, we see them use another tool of theirs to this very end, their long trumpet, which doubles as both a paddle and instrument. Given the Greek themes behind Psychopomps and the Tibia Mariners, I liken this trumpet to the Salpinx, a trumpet-like instrument of the ancient Greeks, and you can see the long design of this instrument is very close in appearance to the same one that the Mariners use. Historians have speculated that this instrument, the Salpinx, was a military instrument, meant to give commands before a battle started, and in Elden Ring I speculate the Tibia Mariner uses it in a similar fashion. They use the trumpet to guide and direct the dead, those who are lost to our world, those who are lost in death, and upon hearing the trumpet they are guided to the Tibia Mariner's side, being pulled into our world and becoming those who live in death, and we do see this throughout our fights with the Tibia Mariners, that those they summon are those who live in death. New warriors for these mysterious boatmen. As Vati quite rightly points out in his Death Boss lore video, the Tibia Mariners can also be related to another talking point in regards to the Psychopomps, Helfin's Steeple, as the Tibia Mariner in the mountaintops of the Giants drops this item. And as we will see, it really will continue on these themes of guiding the dead. So let us start to unpack the ideas found in this item by reading its item description. Greatsword patterned after the black steeple of the Helfin, the lampwood which guides the dead of the spirit world. The lamplight is similar to grace in appearance, only it is said that it can only be seen by those who met their death in battle. Again, we quite clearly see the reoccurring themes of the guidance of the dead, and I believe the choice of the name also illustrates this. The spelling of Helfin may not necessarily mean anything spelled out, but phonetically it is the same as the German word Helfen, meaning help or assistance in English. And this makes sense, given its role in helping the lost spirits of the dead in finding their way to the spirit world. Now, the idea of a spirit world is a fascinating concept for the Lands Between, especially when we get visual hints that there may be a spiritual realm in Elden Ring, and it's made even more tantalising that we get nothing else mentioned on it, apart from this health and steeple item description. And it is at this point I'm going to recommend another excellent video by the creator Crunchy, who did a deep dive on the concept of a spirit world in Elden Ring, and he covers this in his health and lore video, which I've already mentioned a few times throughout this video. I cannot recommend it enough, and please go and give Crunchy your support. That being said, let us break down what we know of the Helfen. According to the description of the sword, is modelled after a lampwood, or as Vati's translation in his video states, a lamplight tree, and again thanks to Vati for sharing these translations. So in short, the sword seems to mimic a black forked tree that appears in the spirit realm as a lamplight to guide them with a sort of grace. The fact that this is a tree that is also giving off a sort of grace suggests it may be some kind of mirror of the Erd tree in the Shadow Realm, and again this is something that Crunchy touches upon in his video. Vati theorises that this sort of grace mimicking light could be red, due to the red gem found in the sword itself. Now the red is interesting, because when the Tibia Mariners summon those who are lost in death to become those who live in death, a red light can be seen as they are summoned, 
as if the Tibia Mariners are harnessing or mimicking the power of the Helfen, and I do think this red light helps lend credence to Vati's ideas that this is a red light rather than a golden light as it is for Grace. And ultimately this idea of a light guiding the dead to where they need to be is also a theme that is backed up by the fact it is what Rosas does as well. He uses a blue light to guide the dead to his intended destination. Another facet of this sword that's interesting in regards to the greater themes of death is the weapon art attached to it which is called Ruinous Steeple, which wreathes the sword in Ghost Flame. Ghost Flame is something we have discussed at length in this video, and it ties us back to the Death Rite and the Death Bird. As Crunchy points out in his video, the steeple of the Helfen Sword is very similar to the Death Rite Staffs and also the Red Feathered Branch Sword Talismans that were once used in ancient death rituals, doubtless the Death Rites, given that these items drop from the Death Birds. Is it possible that the Helfen Tree was the model for these ritual implements as used by the Death Rites? And if so, does the ghost flame on the sword and the possession of the sword by the Tibia Mariner tie these two practices together? In my opinion, the answer is both yes and no. I think that Dee's initial dialogue makes it clear that the Tibia Mariners are essentially manifestations of the death route and shepherds for those who live in death. They are spawn of the mark of the centipede. Heed my warning. The village here has been touched by death. And worse yet, it is home to a mariner. So they are something separate from the death rite birds. And this is of course reinforced by the fact that the Tibia Mariners are the main holders of the death route, and this ties them very firmly to Godwin. Yet those who live in death do seem to burn in the ghost flame after they die before resurrecting. The ghost flame is wielded by the death birds, is wreathed on the Helfen blade, which is in turn borne by the Tibia Mariner. The ghost flame even appears tied to the mausoleums, as when we clear the skull barnacles from their feet, a burst of ghost flame is seen, and I would speculate this suggests that the mausoleum attracts these souls or gathers them, and this is because of the soulless demigod entombed within, a nexus of death if you will. There are a lot of connections here, and going even deeper we can find further connections between all of these subjects which can make it confusing. As Crunchy states in his health and video, the ghost flame could easily be described as fire, drained of colour, a white flame. The eclipse tightly associated with the soulless demigods is also described as the sun drained of its colour. And as described in my prior Godwin lore video, last protagonist's comment on a V-limit eclipse video makes it clear that the Japanese or kanji for eclipse means worm-eaten, corroded, and the word roses is a Latin word which means nod, eaten away. So what is the connection between all these subjects? Well, first of all, I wouldn't make it too literal and think that all of these practices are linked. I think it's just a thematic connection for death. As English speakers, there's lots of things we're not understanding, that thematically, these are all death subjects and thus they will repeat a lot of the same imagery and themes and language to evoke a certain feeling from their audience. It's just that culturally, we are not up to the same speed as some of the Japanese players will be. But if you do want to try and tie it together in the lore as to why there's so many overlaps between these ideas, we all have to bear in mind that all of these practices, all these funerary rites, all these agents of different outer gods and the greater will, all draw from the same place. 
the spirit realm or the realm of the dead. I have already discussed how the ghost flame, while often associated with the death birds, is actually more an intrinsic part of all dead and all spirits, hence why it can be summoned via grave violet which has grown from carrion, as well as why the ghost flame is associated with those who live in death, necromancy and the health and sword. As in the real world, funerary rites cross over with one another, they take ideas from one another, and ultimately they deal with the same grand questions that we do in the real world, and this is why traditions in the real world and in Elden Ring when it comes to death often deal with similar subjects, just in slightly different ways. My point is, is that we have highlighted several different systems and different masters behind these different funerary rites and the different cycle pomps that have their different motivations for guiding the dead to their own ends, but you will see similar forces at play in each of the rites because they deal with the same subject, and that is the dead and their spirits. So with that subject fairly well covered, there's some other connected subjects that I want to cover before we wrap up the video on all things death, and I move on from saying death for the thousandth time. The last subject I want to tackle is the mausoleum and the soulless demigods. I'd like to start this section off by first of all acknowledging that I have previously discussed this subject matter in regards to its connection to Godwin in my last video and in Mikla in a far previous video. So there will be a degree of repetition, but I will be covering it in more depth and more holistically, and you will see some thematic allusions and conclusions that I come to that you won't have seen in my prior videos. So let us start with what I see to be the introduction to this faction, so to speak. The dialogue of the ghost from the Weeping Peninsula, who says the following. So this dialogue presupposes that the mausoleum appears to hold a relation of Marika, a demigod. This is then something we can attribute to all mausoleums when we consider the mausoleum circle, which reads, the circle depicts the mausoleum bell, which rings in constant mourning for the soulless demigods. So these structures and their soldiers are entirely formulated around deceased and soulless demigods that are contained within. This is of course in some way linked to Godwin's fate, given he too is soulless and is referred to as the first of the demigods to die, as mentioned by the likes of Rogier and as described on the Golden Epitaph Eight description. So we do need to consider how these demigods within the mausoleums became soulless. Of course it would have been after Godwin's death. To me it doesn't make sense that they too were killed on the night of the Black Knives. We looked at the mechanics of this event during my Godwin lore video, but in a nutshell the assassins actually physically carved the curse mark into Godwin's flesh. Not only that, but it was due to Rani's machinations in having the curse mark broken in half that would cause Godwin to die only in soul, and therefore this exact scenario would need to be repeated for each of the soulless demigods, thus unlikely. However, that being said, I am not Gideon all-knowing, and if you want a well-reasoned and contrasting view, I would recommend a Reddit post by GorseXI, who makes some excellent and well-researched arguments in favour of the demigods intentionally being killed during the Knights of the Black Knives, and so I'll link that below and highly recommend you read that after this video. However, in my opinion, what is more likely 
is that these demigods instead came into contact with the death root that was spread from Godwin's corpse from the roots of the great tree, and upon death they became the soulless. And given the connections found between the mausoleum and the revival of soulless demigods at Castle Sol, it does seem to me to firmly link them to Godwin's condition, i.e. the soullessness brought about by his own undeath. So why are they where they are now in the mausoleums in the way that they are? Well firstly it seems as though they are preserved in this manner because of the loyalty of their liege followers, who seem to want to preserve their fallen lords until they are able to be revived. A good source of evidence for this is the description of the mausoleum knight armour, which reads as follows. Armour worn by headless knights who endlessly watch the wandering mausoleum. A self-inflicted curse that ties the spirits of these loyal knights to the land, having willingly beheaded themselves so that they may serve their masters in death. So the fact this says their masters suggests that these warriors were the forces of the demigod when the demigod was alive. They are their soldiers in life and in death. And this can explain why the mausoleum soldiers and knights have armour in keeping with the rest of the forces of the demigods of the living world. This piece of lore also indicates that they then became headless on purpose, through some sort of ritual that binds these warriors as undead immortal guardians, tied to their purpose. Indeed, we do see every single mausoleum warrior and knight is without a head. And in fact, this also matches up with their masters. Each of the soulless demigods found within the mausoleum are also without a head. But why? The warriors seem to do this as some sort of ritual to become immortal guardians. But why are the demigods themselves beheaded? While this is a fairly threadbare area of the lore, there are some interesting connections that we can make. We have already commented on the fact that the funerary practices of the world sometimes overlap when it comes to ideas, beliefs and symbolism, and in this case there is a most notable overlap with the mausoleum knights integrating deathbird imagery. Of course, looking at the mausoleum knight armour set, we can see the wings of the deathbird have been taken upon their backs, symbolising death. Now this is of interest to me because the decapitations associated with the mausoleum knights could also be tied to deathbird imagery. One-Eyed Dragon Powell made a comment on V-Limit's Eclipse video, suggesting that the sacrificial axe may have had some connection to the process behind the mausoleum soldier's decapitation. Firstly, axes are often used historically in the process of decapitation, and secondly, this axe is also symbolically tied to the death birds, for its description reads, Hatchet used an ancient sacrificial rite, a death bird is depicted as a malevolent deity. The power of the rite yet lingers. Given the mausoleum knights have already incorporated death birds into their symbolism, it isn't a stretch to imagine they also could have built this ancient sacrificial rite into their practices. While I would like to stress that this is speculation, it does tie in very neatly. The beheadings and the axe obviously tie in together nicely, and it ties together with the death bird imagery that the mausoleum knights already use. Furthermore, the axe mentions an ancient rite, and that the power of this rite still lingers, as if there is a real power to the sacrificial rite being performed. Is it possible that this ancient rite mentioned in the hatchet is also the rite 
mentioned in the Mausoleum Knight armor. I will leave that thought with you, but for me it is definitely possible, and I thank One-Eyed Dragon Powell for that insightful comment. The only other question remaining about this burial practice, about having the soulless demigod in the mausoleum, is why the demigods themselves are beheaded before being interred. So to that end I do have a pretty speculative theory that I'm basing on my own knowledge of real world burial practices and decapitations. So just bear with me a moment. So decapitation is obviously something that has happened in real life throughout history for varying reasons, most often for banal punishment or execution, and you wouldn't think there's much here to relate it to the burial of a soulless demigod. However, in some cases, there are symbolic purposes behind decapitations. For example, some are done to prevent a soul from reaching the afterlife, or it was often used to prevent the unquiet dead from reanimating, i.e. zombies. Fear of revenants or the dead rising is a fear that's reported all the way back in the Roman era, and dismemberment was hoped to be a cure for such reanimation. And relating this back to the soulless demigods, I do not believe these are random or just a artistic choice, but are instead a measure to make sure that the bodies of the soulless demigods are able to remain as they are until their resurrection comes. Consider Godwin's fate. His body has grown grotesque and monstrous due to his lack of a soul. And as we learn from Luteal's ashes, as well as the events at Castle Soul, the eventual goal of the mausoleums and their knights is to protect their soulless demigod until they are able to be revived. And in comparison to Godwin's corpse, the corpses of the soulless demigod seem pretty secure, pretty nice and pretty uncorrupted. They are preserved. I may obviously not be right here and I am stretching credulity a little bit, but I do believe the idea of decapitations putting the unquiet dead to rest feels right to me. These are corrupted soulless demigods at the end of the day. And bear in mind that this practice of the mausoleum knight seems to be supported by the Erdtree Society, given that Lutiel earns an Erdtree burial through her actions as a mausoleum guardian, meaning that the practices of the mausoleum must not be contrary to the beliefs and ideals of the Erdtree. And I think, therefore, by decapitating a soulless demigod and preventing them from joining those who live in death, not only do they preserve their lord until their revival, but they also prevent the spread of those who live in death, and therefore it makes sense why a hero like Lutiel, giving her life to defend such an ideal, would be given an Erdtree burial. But that is just my speculation on the matter. And for me that wraps up my understanding of death and burial practices and cycle pomps in the lands between. I've already discussed the significance of the Eclipse and the greater ideals of Castle Sol in my Godwin lore video and Mikla lore video, and I can also recommend V-Limit's excellent Eclipse video. For now that is me done with the subject of death however, and in a way it acted as an appendix or part 2 to my Godwin videos, but in many ways it went far further than I thought it would, and so I do believe it warranted its own video. I think between these two videos and the Marika and Erdtree video, I have a good concept of life and death in the lore, so I will be moving on from it for the time being, and I think the next video on my list is the dragons. If you like this video, please give it a like and subscribe, as I do do long form Elden Ring lore content, completely primarily at the moment, so if you like lore, I'm the place to go. 
Please let me know your thoughts in the comments below if you think I missed anything pertinent regarding death and burial that wasn't included in this video or any of my other videos and I'll happily have a look at it. I'd like to thank my members and Patreons for supporting the channel and if you too would like to become a patron of the channel please consider becoming a channel member or looking up my Patreon. Until next time guys let me know what you'd like me to cover next and I will see you on the slopes of the mountain tops of the giants. Take care and have a wonderful night.